Well, good morning, Anchored. It is a joy to once again open the Word of God for you. It's always a privilege to do that, and we all know that this is so important for us. To spend time in the Word is is vital. The words of Moses in, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, say that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that comes from the mouth of God, and that's his word. And when we look around at the circumstances we find ourselves in today, this truth is as relevant and necessary for reminder as ever. Uh, We see the social unrest, uh, we read of the political upheaval, we see the news reports of all that's going on, the economic problems and so on. There are a lot of ideas out there that are vying for our attention. There is a massive battle going on for our thinking. And so in times like these, it is especially important to come back to the Word of God and have our thinking challenged and changed by what the Word of the Lord says. And that's why we're here. And in a time like this, it's especially important to think about how our attitudes are to be focused uh, when there are many threats coming from the outside. And the text that we're going to look at this morning is so apropos The text is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. I'll read that in just a moment. But as I think of what's going on around the world today, as I think about what's going around even close to home here, there is one text that really helps us keep our eyes on the prize, and it is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. But to set the context, let me begin reading with Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The Apostle Paul, in this letter, now comes to really the, the heart of the reason why he writes. He says this, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised up with him through faith, In the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is Christ. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of that which is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And then we come to the text that we're studying this morning, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The Apostle Paul had never visited the city of Colossae to our understanding, to our knowledge. And yet he writes to this dear church as one who is quite familiar with both their history and their need. Now, where did that all come from? Well, Paul himself refers to the planting of this church in Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. And if we would turn there, we would read of a certain individual by the name of Epaphras. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul specifically says that the Colossian church, the believers, the members of that fellowship there, had learned the grace of God from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has informed us of your love in the Spirit. So from what we know is that this man named Epaphras brought the gospel from Paul to the city of Colossae. Now, when did that happen? Well, we can pretty confidently trace that to Paul's three-year ministry in the city of Ephesus. If you would turn to Acts chapter 19, we would read of Luke's account of Paul's third missionary journey. And for three years, Paul spends time in this coastal city of Ephesus. It was a city on the Aegean Sea in western Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we read there in Acts 19, according to Luke, that Paul established what we could call the first seminary. He established a school that would meet in what is called the Hall of Tyrannus, and Paul would daily lecture the disciples there. And Luke records that Paul's ministry was so effective that the word of the Lord spread throughout the Roman province of Asia. That's western Turkey. And likely, Epaphras was one of those disciples. And so somewhere between the years of AD 52 and AD 55 on Paul's third missionary journey as he's there in Ephesus, this disciple named Epaphras, taught by Paul, takes the gospel back to his hometown Colossae, which was 120 miles inland to the east in the Lycus Valley, brings the gospel to his own city, and and then a church is formed. That's how the gospel came to them. And undoubtedly, Epaphras had at various times met up again with Paul and informed Paul of the faith of these dear believers. Now, in the letter to the Colossians, we find a mention of Epaphras one more time. It's at the end of the letter. At the end of the letter, in chapter 4, verse 12, we have a reference again, as Paul writes to the Colossian church, to Epaphras. We read this, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings, laboring earnest, earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So when Paul writes this letter, Epaphras is actually at Paul's side. Now, when did Paul write the Colossian letter? He wrote this letter when he was imprisoned in Rome, or better described as being under house arrest in the city of Rome as he awaited his trial and the verdict before Nero. We would read later on that Paul will be released at that time after his first Roman imprisonment. But when he writes, he's under house arrest, and the Colossian church has sent Epaphras to Paul. In those days, if you were in prison or under house arrest, there would be no sustenance for you. There would be no provision for your needs. And so either the benevolence of strangers or the benevolence of good friends would would be a necessity. And so undoubtedly, Epaphras is sent by the Colossian church to Paul in Rome to minister to Paul's need as he's there chained to a, a Roman guard under house arrest. And when Epaphras comes, Epaphras informs Paul of the situation there in Colossae. This would have been about 
eight years after the church had been formed. If the church was formed sometime between the years eighty fifty two and eighty fifty five, when Paul was on his third missionary journey ministering in Ephesus, when he writes this letter, it would have been somewhere between eighty sixty and eighty sixty two, roughly eight years later. And when Epaphras comes to Paul, he brings news to Paul about the church in Colossae. And the news that Paul hears is indeed concerning. Now, what was the nature of that news? Well, when we read the letter to the Colossians, we can observe these features. Paul was concerned about the threats being made against the church. These weren't threats that were arising from within the church itself. These were threats from outside of the church. These were the dangers of compromise. The church, already being maybe eight years old, was feeling pressure from the outside, externally. Pressure to compromise. There were various ideologies, various worldviews that were seeking not simply to exterminate the church. Rather, they were seeking to infiltrate the church, seeking to weld the church's ideas to their own. And what were the nature of these threats? Well, they focused on two things in particular. As we read through the letter of, uh, of Paul to the Colossians, we read that one of the threats concerned the nature of Jesus Christ. Who is he as Lord and as Redeemer? And Paul sets out and writes this wonderful letter about the supremacy, the the superiority, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over every other ideology. The second threat came from misunderstanding and a misconstrual of the nature of the Christian life, of life in Christ. And so Paul sets out also in this letter to to provide the Colossians with an apologetic, not only about the person of Christ, who he really is, and his superiority and his preeminence and, and, and his priority over all things, but also to provide them with an apologetic over the Christian life, how they are to think and how they are to live in the light of these competing and threatening ideologies. As I said, the, the heart of the letter really rotates on this foundational principle, this, this exhortation in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. No one takes you prisoner through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. That is what was at stake. And if we think of the day in which we live today, if we would think of the Apostle Paul writing to us today, I think these words fit extremely well. Beloved, see to it that no one takes you prisoner through philosophy, through ideologies, through human wisdom, through vain, deceptive truths, that are established according to the traditions of man and the traditions of this world rather than according to the exclusive traditions of Christ. That is the fundamental exhortation, and that is what we need today. This reminder that there is a battle that is raging. There is a battle that is raging over our understanding of Christ And a battle that is raging over our understanding of the Christian life, its nature, how it looks, its fabric, and how are we going to respond that Paul exhorts us to keep our eyes on the prize, to keep our eyes focused exclusively on Christ and not be distracted by the things taking place in the world around us. Now, in that day... What were the things that were challenging these Colossian believers? Again, if we would survey the letter, I think we could summarize the challenges in three categories. First, there was the threat made by Jewish legalism. The attempt to synchronize 
Jewish legalism, the Mosaic law, with the teaching of the gospel. And that's why, as we already read, Paul made reference to the Sabbath and to festivals and to new moon feasts and so on and so forth. They were those who were operating in Colossae, as they were in other cities, trying to get Christians, Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, to go back and make themselves again enslaved to the Mosaic law. And Paul said, we are not under the Mosaic law. A second category of threat came from the society at large, the Gentile culture. This was the the thinking of, of superstition, of folklore, the worship of angels and seeing of visions and things of that nature. And we could look through the letter to the Colossians and see that this was a threat as well. That these ideas were threatening the church. There were those outside the church attempting to infiltrate the church and bring into the church these kinds of superstitious, mystical ideas. And then thirdly, there was an educated threat. A threat that came from the elite. A threat that came from the educated in society. And it was particularly the threat of Greek philosophy. Paul alludes to it in in, in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Oh, there was certainly a teaching in the world at that time that emphasized morality, that had a system of ethics, that had a way of explaining origins, that had a way of explaining the, the right way human beings should live according to their understanding whether it was the teachings of Plato or Aristotle, whether it was the teachings of Stoicism or Epicureanism, there were all these ideologies that were especially popular among the educated. And those in the culture around the Colossians were seeking to bring these ideas into the church. Again, they were not wanting to cancel out the church directly. They were seeking to wed the thinking of the world, the traditions of men, with the thinking of with the rationality, with the content of the gospel. Now, in light of that, we come to our text. Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4. Let me read it again. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, in light of what Paul has said in the previous verses about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, in light of what he has said and what we've already read about all that God has done for us in Christ and through Christ. And in light of the ubiquitous nature of the threats around us, how are we to structure our thinking? Where are we to place our focus? Well, Paul deals with that wonderfully in these four verses of chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And this text provides two important principles for us as we think about how to think in our current context. The first is this. In light of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, focus your attention upward to heaven. We're going to find that in verses 1 and 2. In light of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, focus your attention upward to heaven. And then secondly, the second important principle here for structuring our thinking in times like these, is found in verses 3 and 4, and it's this. In light of what God has done for you in Christ, focus your attention forward to the future. In light of what, Christ, in light of what God has done for you in Christ, focus your attention forward to the future. Paul's two important principles can be summarized this way, upward and forward to things above, and to the future. We are in a great battle, and it's a battle over our thinking. And these two important principles are vital for our thinking in times like these. Now let's look at them more specifically. First of all, focus your attention upward to heaven. Verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, Paul begins here with an assumption. It's important to notice this in the beginning of verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. It's a conditional sentence. Now, it's not as though Paul is doubting the salvation of the members of the Colossian church. It's not as if he's asking, hey, are you really saved or not? Rather, he, he states this in such a way as to elicit their contemplation. Now, some would like to translate this as, since you have been raised up with Christ. And in the one hand, on the one hand, that certainly does express the confidence. The way that the original here is expressed assumes the truthfulness of this condition. If you have been raised up with Christ, and you have been. But the reason why it's rightly translated as if and not since is because Paul wants the Colossians to contemplate. And he wants us to contemplate as well. We need to think about the consequences. We need to think about the implications of what has happened to us in Christ Jesus. And what is the contemplation that Paul aims at? Well, he aims at this fundamental idea of spiritual identification, spiritual association. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, and that prepositional phrase, with Christ, is really central to Paul's understanding of the Christian life. It's more often expressed as in Christ, but with Christ is another popular saying of Paul. And even if we turn back to chapter 2, we see him going back and forth between in Christ and with Christ, and he repeats it with this intensity to emphasize our spiritual identification. Notice, for example, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. He says in verse 11, in him, in Christ, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Verse 12, you have been buried with him, with Christ. And verse 12 again, you have been raised up with him. Verse 13, you have been made alive together with him. Verse 15, that through Christ we have triumphed over enemies through him. Over and over again, Paul emphasizes spiritual identity. He cannot, he cannot contemplate true spiritual life, true spiritual living apart from Jesus Christ. There is no Savior, there is no way of salvation, there is no redemption apart from the true Jesus Christ. And Paul wanted the Colossians, as he wants us today, He wanted the Colossians to think about the ramifications of that. You have been raised up with Christ. Now, in light of that assumption, he gives two parallel exhortations in verses 1 and 2. These exhortations that challenge us to set our attention upward. Notice what he says. He says, keep seeking the things above. And then in verse 2, set your mind on things above. Two parallel, two really synonymous, although there's a slight difference here, two parallel exhortations. Let's look at each one of these. First, he says, seek. Seek. The focus of this exhortation is on our zeal. The focus of this exhortation is on our desires, on our passions, what motivates us, what drives us. Paul says, try to find something, pursue something. He is speaking to our desires, our drives. And he expresses this not as a one-time seeking, a one-time effort, but a continual lifestyle of seeking. Be seeking the things above. And let's look at that for just a moment. The object of these passions, the object of this seeking, he calls it the things above, the above things. He's going to repeat this same phrase again in verse 2. But let's look at it first in verse 1. Seek 
the things above. Now, what is he referring to there? Well, obviously it means if it's above, it's above something else. And so immediately we answer that and say, well, obviously it is above our circumstances. It is above our immediate context, something above that. But Paul doesn't leave us to guess. He explicitly states that these things above are located where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our focus, our passions, our desires, our zeal, what drives us and gets us excited in life, is not to be found in our present circumstances. It's not to be found in our earthly citizenship. It's not to be found in our defense of a way of life here. Our passions are to be set continually on those things that represent Jesus Christ. They are to be focused on Jesus Christ and all the things associated with him. They are to be set on the things where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Now, sometimes Christians can say, yeah, I, I want to go to heaven. And those desires are not necessarily correct, uh, incorrect, but they're a little misplaced. You talk to some and some will say, well, I want to see the pearly gates. I want to see the streets of gold. You'll have some who say, I want to go see my favorite church history hero, And you'll have others who say, well, I want to go and and be with family who have preceded me to heaven. Those things are all good, but they're not the focus of the Christian. Remember, counseling one young seminarian who he had lost, his wife had lost her mother through a very horrific accident. The wife of this seminary student loved her mother, and her mother had been walking across the street, and a car had mowed her over. Now, that wife was extremely close to her mother, and the death of her mother initiated this two-year-long period of very intense depression. And as I talked with the seminary student, he would say to me that his wife just wanted to die, and I said, well, why does she want to die? And he would say, she just wants to go and be with her mother. Well, that is not what Paul is talking about here. That is not the kind of focus that Christians are to have. Now, yes, indeed, we can look forward to those reunions in paradise. But our focus is to be placed, our passions and desires are to be placed on those things associated with Christ, his mission his glory, his values. And they are located at the right hand of God. Beloved, is that where your drive is? Is that where your focus is? Paul continues and he gives a second exhortation here, a parallel one as he continues to challenge us to set our eyes above. He says this at the beginning of verse 2, set your mind on things above. Now, whereas the first exhortation focused more on our zeal, this exhortation focuses squarely on our thinking, on our rationality. It it focuses on our thought life. And Paul, again, doesn't express this as a one-time deal. This is a continual lifestyle. And Paul says, be thinking. Have your minds continually dwelling upon the things above. These are the things that are to fill our thought life. How the mind operates. The way of making decisions. The way we order our priorities. All those things are to be thoroughly permeated with a transcendent perspective. And notice again, Paul says that the mind is to be focused Its rationality is to be focused upon those things that are above. And now he again explains what those things are. But now he uses a negative description. In the first exhortation, it was positive. Those things, the desires and passions of one's life, are to be focused on Christ, where he's seated at the right hand of God. But here Paul says it in the negative. Do not, you could say, do not have your mind set on the things below, the things that are on 
the earth, earthly matters, the things of this world, the values of this world, the glories of this world, the traditions of this world, the, the things that this world treasures. Paul says, do not set your mind on these things. And we know that, go back to chapter 2, verse 8. What were some of those things? Paul describes it as philosophy, the love of wisdom. He describes it as empty deception. He describes it as the tradition of men. He describes it as the elementary principles of the world. These were the, the, the things that were seeking to draw the thought life of the Colossian believers. And Paul says, do not let that happen. Do not fall into that trap. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. He speaks of this in in another very uh, poignant way. He says this, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. A little bit later in chapter 2, verse 23, he says this, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Self-made religion, the appearance of wisdom, the traditions of men. Beloved, if Paul would write to us today a letter as he did to the Colossians, I am confident he would say the exact same things. Just look at the media today, the moralizing of the media in self-made religion. Look at what is going on in the world today as it pertains to philosophy and ideologies. What we see playing around us is not just the typical partisan politics of of Republicans versus Democrats. What we see is an intense battle over ideologies, an intense battle over religious and spiritual and moral thinking. It is a dramatic struggle over transforming the society, and sadly, many in the church are following along in the mob, following along in what the world is proffering. And you might say, well, surely that won't happen to us. But let me exhort you that the things of this world, the things of this earth, can appear to be very appealing even to those who think they are close to Christ. Let me give you an example. Mark chapter 8, verses 32 to 33. You don't need to turn there, but in Mark chapter 8, verses 32 to 33, we read these sta- this statement from Jesus. He says it to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Now stop there for just a moment. What has happened in the context? Well, in the context, Jesus has foretold his mission, that he would go to Jerusalem and he would die. He would offer up his life as an atonement. And as he has prophesied of that impending death, Peter takes him aside and says, no way. That is not our strategy. We want deliverance. We want freedom from the oppressive Romans. We want to create our nation state. And Jesus takes Peter and looks at him directly in the eyes and he says a word or a phrase that would make anyone shudder. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind. There's the same verb as we find in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 3. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had other ideas for the kind of savior Jesus would need to be. Peter had other ideas for the kind of life that he would have as a follower of this Jesus. Peter had the idea of a crown without a cross of justice without atonement. And Jesus, in the most strictest of terms, rebukes Peter and identifies the thinking behind Peter's mindset. Get behind me, Satan. 
We need to remember that for our own day. There are many who are claiming Christ. Even as we look at the, the, the protests in the world, as we look at the, the, the things happening in the media today, most of them who are marching will claim the name of Christ. But as you look further into what they believe about him, it is not the biblical Christ. Just the other day, I watched a report or a, a, an interview with one of the key leaders in the Black Lives Matters movement. And he described his vision of Jesus and affirmed his full belief in Jesus Christ. Well, it was not the Jesus of Scripture. And unfortunately, many are placing their lives along and identifying with that very ideology. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. And Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians, you must set your mind on the things above. So first, we must set our minds on things above. We must focus our attention upward. Secondly, we must focus our attention forward. We must focus our attention forward to the future. This is communicated for us in verses 3 and 4. This is what Paul says. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, this is a a very fascinating uh, sentence uh, or set of sentences here. This is a very interesting way of expressing Paul's explanation for why we ought to have our attention focused above. He begins verse 3 with with 4, so he's explaining more. But as he does, he he gives us also this additional principle that our our attention needs to be forward-oriented, not looking at what we can achieve today, but looking at what Christ will achieve in the future. And as he does this in verses 3 and 4, notice there are three key verbs that follow a particular chronological sequence. He begins first, and he says, you have died, speaking of a completed past event. And then he says, and now your life is hidden, speaking of the present. And then he transitions to the future in verse 4. And he talks about our lives that will be revealed with him in glory. Let's look quickly at each of those three key verbs. First of all, he refers us to the past. He says this, you have died. You have died. It's a simple, completed act. You have died. You have entered a state of deadness. Now, what kind of death is Paul referring to? Well, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 13, he refers to one kind of death. And it's not the death that he has in mind in chapter 3, verse 3. In 2, verse 13, he says this, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. At one time, you were dead, Paul said. But that was a death in sin. But the death that Paul refers to here in chapter 3, verse 3, is a different kind of death. It is referred to in chapter 2, verse 20. If you look at chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, You have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. So here's the idea. Two kinds of death. The one death is the death that is experienced by all who are enslaved in sin dead in trespasses and sins. The other kind of death is the death that marks only those who have been associated with Jesus Christ. You have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. And this is the irony of the Christian life. Before Christ, the the person is dead in sin, dead to uh, the things of God and dead in his love of the world and enslaved to its ideologies. But in Christ, as a result of redemption, the believer now has a status, a status of being dead to sin and being dead to the world's ideologies. And Paul wants us to remember that. 
that in Christ, that past enslavement, that inevitability of marching along with the world, that lifestyle is gone. It's gone. We are no longer identified with the world. Our ideology, our thinking, our worldview is completely antithetical. It is different than that of the world. Well, that's the past. Paul says, you have died. But then he moves to the present and he says this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the present. This is the present. And he uses this verb hidden to hide in a, in a very interesting sense here. He refers to our life. What we experience now is not something that we can really see and observe, something that's not tangible to us yet. It's something that is hidden. And the meaning of this verb to hide has a double nuance. It has the idea of concealment and protection. Concealment and protection. Concealment, keeping out of sight, and protection, preserving something that is not susceptible to theft, to attack, something that can't be pilfered. And Paul says that our life, the Christian's true identity, is not something that is visible. It is something that is concealed. And it has been concealed for the sake of protection. Now, where is it concealed? Notice how Paul describes it. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a very fascinating statement. Paul doesn't just say, it is hidden with Christ, or he doesn't just say it is hidden in God. He says it is hidden with Christ in God. This is a double rampart. It's like having a wide and deep moat and a high and thick wall. It is impenetrable. Nothing can can compromise that protection. That is what God has accomplished for us through Christ. He has given us a new life, but we must remember that the true identity, the true nature of this life is not something that is going to be realized in this present age, in this present existence. He says it's been hidden. This is what what Paul wants us to recognize. A life that you can have in this world a life that looks like this world or a life that this world can accomplish is never something that should appeal to the Christian as his great desire. Our life has been hidden with Christ in God. And that moves us now to the future. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In the past, you died. In the present, your life is hidden. But the future, when the future comes, then your true identity, your essence will be revealed. You will appear in fullness. Verse 4 is the climax. And this is what exhorts us to keep our attention focused on the future. We cannot accomplish what Paul is speaking of in verse 4. We cannot accomplish it in this life. It is only something that will come when Christ comes. And notice how Christ is again described. And, and it's so important to recognize the Christocentric nature of Paul's theology here. He's referred to Christ so many times in these verses, twice in verse 1. He's referred to it once in verse 3, and he refers to Christ again in verse 4. This is Christocentric thinking. When Christ appears, when Christ appears, he calls Christ our life. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, there Paul says Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our redemption. But here Paul says Christ is our life. Christ is our life. Now again, we cannot read this without going back to the previous chapters of Colossians to define who this Christ is. This isn't the Christ of our imagination. This isn't the Christ of some contemporary worldly ideology that seeks to to 
take hold of Christ and make him a sponsor of their ideology. This is the Christ of the apostolic witness, who, for example, in chapter 1, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. 1 verse 16, Christ who created all things. 1 verse 17, the one who is before all things and who holds all things together. 1 verse 18, Christ who is the head, the authority, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Christ, in verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 22, who has reconciled us through his atoning death to present us holy to the Father. Chapter 1, verse 27, Christ, who is the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 2, verse 9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Chapter 2, verse 10, in Christ we have been made complete. In chapter 2, verse 13, Christ has made us alive. In chapter 2, verse 14, through Christ our certificate of debt was canceled. Chapter 2, verse 15, in Christ or through Christ our enemies were disarmed. And it goes on and on and on. This is the Christ, the true Christ. This is the one, Paul says, who is our life. And when he returns, not now, not in this present existence, but when he returns, then the life that we long for will be revealed. Not one moment earlier. And there's nothing that we can do to force it. When Christ returns when he is revealed then also will be revealed our life and it will be in glory how we long for that day perfect holiness perfect justice perfect peace perfect trans- tranquility Reminded of the, the words of the Apostle John who says much the same thing in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, where we read this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know, however, that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is exactly what Paul is saying to the Colossian church. Exactly what John says in 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. Paul is saying to the Colossians, he's saying, focus your attention upward to heaven. Have a heavenly perspective as you walk through this present life. And secondly, focus your attention to the future, to the return and the appearance of Christ. Have that future-oriented perspective. Nothing less will do. And beloved, this is what we need in our world today. This is what we need. This is, this is the kind of thinking that, 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 we, that, that we must focus on if, if we are to be a light. We are not citizens of this world. There is nothing that this world shares with Christ and Christ with this world. And to be a light, we must be different. We cannot follow the crowd. Our thinking must be so different that it is immediately recognizable to the world around us that we are not of this world. And people will rage Governments will rise and fall, ideologies will come and go, philosophies will be proffered, but this is the truth that must remain central to us. Our focus is on Christ in heaven, and our focus is on Christ's return in the future. In light of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, focus your attention upward to heaven. In light of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, focus your attention forward to the future. This is what is is set before us. Let me close with this thought. Have you 
embraced what God has done in Christ Jesus. Do you truly believe the gospel offered through the biblical Christ? Or have you believed in a false gospel of a false Christ that is according to the traditions of men? Well, if you have, and if you will not believe in the Christ offered in the scriptures, you can be sure that there is nothing for you above and related to the future when Christ appears. It will not be glory for you, but it will mean eternal damnation. However, the hope of the gospel remains secure. It is a gospel that is extended to you today to turn your back on the world and believe only in Christ. Believe in his offer of forgiveness. Believe in his cancellation of your debt. Believe in his provision of eternal life. And believe in the future of glory that he promises. And this is only done through placing your faith squarely and solely on the person of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If you have, then set your focus on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, which never loses its relevancy. It speaks to our circumstances today, and this text in particular is so challenging and convicting, and yet it is uplifting. It reminds us that your kingdom is not on this earth. It is above and it is to come. And that as we look at the world around us and we see the turbulence, we know this is not your kingdom. Your kingdom is waiting in the heavens where Christ is seated and it will come in glory. We ask you, Heavenly Father, to focus our attention on the King where he is now, and to focus our attention on his return. May those things be our guiding principles as we walk through these turbulent times. May they give us confidence and peace as the world around us crumbles. And may these truths protect us from all all the ideologies and worldviews that are seeking to infiltrate our thinking, we ask this for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.